Welcome to the Think Education podcast. My name is Chris Hill, and I am joined today by a colleague based in, at the moment, at least in colder climes than me. He's uh, he's in the United Kingdom. Um, Jack Lee is a currently lecturer in comparative education and education policy at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, his research focuses on the international dimension of higher education and the politics of educational reforms, particularly in the global south. Um, it's a conversation we had with, with Angela talking about a lot of these issues uh, as well previously. Uh, Jack's previous research projects have examined soft power through higher education, research capacity building in Kazakhstan, faculty mobility, the creation of German binational universities, which is something I've had students working on in the past. It's a very, very interesting, uh, I don't think much talked about topic, but very, very interesting one. Um, And higher education partnerships through China's Belt and Road Initiative. Um, And, um, because that's not enough, also the development of education hubs in Malaysia, Singapore and Hong Kong, also an area I'm... uh, familiar with but very very fond of. Um, Jack is on the executive committee of the British Association for International and Comparative Education and a member of the editorial board of Compare. Uh, Previously Jack was the director of studies of the DBA program at the University of Bath, an assistant professor at Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan and a program manager at the Centre for Intercultural Communication at the University of British Columbia in Canada. Holds a PhD in higher education with a specialization in comparative and international education from the University of Toronto. And I guess once the summer is done, uh, a short lateral move to the University of Glasgow to take up the position of senior lecturer. Um, so uh, a great bonus, a loss to his current colleagues and a great bonus to his uh, his. Uh, future and uh, almost new colleagues when he joins Glasgow. Um, Jack, it's a it's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast, and and thank you very much for taking the time uh, to join. Thank you very much, Christopher. Uh, we've met each other in different circumstances, but this is my first podcast, so I am very interested to uh, see how this plays out, and also uh, very flattered to be speaking about my article on decolonization absolutely and we should say you know you're you're uh, also under um under the weather as as many of us are as we get to the end of term with uh, with a sore throat and so um we very much appreciate not just being here but uh but battling uh, uh battling a sore throat so it's it's a great uh, great pleasure and and yes absolutely the 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 article that that you mentioned which i i really enjoyed reading um and we'll put a link uh, to it, I mean, it was posted on LinkedIn, but we'll put a link with the with the podcast um, as well. Uh, the title of that is "Romanticizing Decolonization and Asian Epistemology: Reflections on Identity and Space." And it's um, it's funny because um, well, I guess one of our previous interactions was um, regarding PhD student of yours um, and the examination of of their thesis and. A lot of the issues within that thesis were looking at space and they were looking at identity. And, uh, you know, it's it's something I think within international higher education broadly, and I suppose transnational education more specifically, that I suppose we're, I guess, only fairly recently even beginning to conceive of. Right. I mean, it's it's something that obviously has always been there. And when I say we are conceiving of it. You know that's the publish 
published world rather than the people involved in the world who obviously have been living this experience for, for many, many generations um, uh, past. And so, I mean, I, I was really just interested to, to hear um, your, obviously your professional reflections, but also your personal journey, um, you know, through, through, well, through your own education um, and then through your, your professional world uh, and your research. So what is it, can I ask, what, what prompted you to, to write an article like this? I mean, it's, it's obviously a very personal one, in addition to being you know, enormously professionally relevant and, and valuable to, to all of us in the, in the sector. So how did it, how did it come about? Um, yeah, it's a good question. So I, I never set about writing on decolonization and certainly never to write about myself. So this piece is uh, sort of auto-ethnographic. I am not trained as an anthropologist, mm. in fact. So to me, both the topic and the method are quite foreign. Right. And I do, consume, I do consume that kind of literature. I do enjoy it. But I never envision myself writing something like this. Um, I would say definitely living in the UK trigger writing this piece. Sure. Uh, many of those... Uh, both inside and outside UK, were anecdotes that I share with close friends and colleagues. Mm. And then I thought, oh, how would I pull this together to make it something scholarly, you know, to link it with sort of our broader field of higher education and also theoretically, what would this mean? Mm -hmm. So I would say living in the UK trigger writing it. And as you know, recently, all the issues with Black Lives Matter and the sort of racism that came out during uh, the pandemic, that was very much in the forefront of a lot of the news media, right? Yeah. So I thought, for higher education, what is this about, right? So mm -hmm. that really prompted me to write this piece. Yeah, um, it's not surprising yeah, I mean that makes perfect sense. It's it's certainly. I mean, we're you know we're reading almost on a daily basis, aren't we, within the UK about you know issues with international students and new restrictions and and you know the way or how international students are viewed, right? You know, I mean, as as in some senses almost as a commodity, right? And in some senses, you know, they're they're a, they're a line on a financial line. Um, some cases they're viewed as a block, right? Oh, oh, it's students from country X, you know, and and there's sort of an assumption that goes along with that. I mean, assumptions are the nice word. Stereotype, prejudice are the, the other words, obviously, or some of the other words. Um, I mean, is it, is it something that you've, within your, your professional experience, have you seen um, changes in the way this is viewed from, from, compared to when you were, say, a student? I mean, is, is there progress being made? Are there new, you know, are we just asking more questions, but the realities are, you know, the same you know is, is the system sort of accepting or acknowledging things that have always been there but we're still you know far, well, clearly we're far from solving problems um how, how is you how have you seen that sort of possible journey yeah so i would say certainly the decolonization discourse is much more at the forefront in the uk than my home country of canada mm -hmm. or where i used to live united states I think in those contexts, it tends to be about multiculturalism and race. But this issue of decolonization is, you know, in many sectors in UK. And I think we have not reached a level of 
how do we actually deal with it in education? Mm-hmm. There is a lot of discussion, and I would even argue some of these discussions are extremely abstract and theoretical. So, how do we actually change education? That's what I grapple with.、Mm. I don't think we are there. No, you know, it's great discussions, and I would even say from institutions, including universities, very rhetorical.、Uh. We ha- we have reach a level where we actually look at practices, and certainly not social interactions among academics, among academics and students, right? Yes. Yes. Um, I mean that's interesting, and I mean even the the, the title, you know, of your piece, "Romanticizing Decolonization." It, it's, it, you know, clearly decolonization or colonization or, or you know secondary wing or wave of colonization, you know, is something that's been clearly evident in 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 education expansion since effectively it began, right? And and I mean, romanticizing the decolonization almost. Makes us think, as the reader, are we saying it's a good thing but not actually doing it, or are we saying that we're doing it but it's not actually a bad thing? You know, it 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 comes with a a bunch of different readings, even the title. And I, I think one of the things that struck me was having worked in um in Malaysia in particular for for quite a few years, and having worked in T and E, you know, for for quite a long time. Something that strikes me is this this tension. That is almost a foundational underpinning of the value perceived of international higher education, which is a lot of the the countries that that were looking to、um, import foreign universities or foreign degrees or, or you know partnerships or providers were doing so based on the assumption or the perceived notion that the foreign quality was good, and a lot of that is driven by. Previous colonial, previous historical traditions and relationships,、um, good or bad, that you know that construct existed, right?、Um, and so a lot of it is we want you to deliver your programs in our country because we need your programs. Plus, you are good, however you define good. And sometimes it's simply the perception of good.、Um, and yet, often what comes is not the value system that the country wants. You know the you know what's being discussed, how it's being taught. You know many of the issues are. Foreign in many ways, and yet they have to be the same as the sending country. Otherwise, the quality assurance is seen to be to be less. So, almost that the foundation system is. You could potentially argue that TNE is encouraging, the increased expansion of colonization, right? By the very nature of what it's actually attracting, and yet it doesn't want that in its in its base form. It just wants the the perceived quality, and. Um, I'm wondering how we we tackle that issue because it's it seems to me almost a complete overhaul of the ideology of education,、right? which is it's a value structure in one place. How do you export the quality, but not the values? Because that value and identity that you know they they seem to me values and identity are very intertwined. And Judith and I have talked about this at length, and we you know we have a book coming out、um, in in a little while that tries to better think about identity and values. And so how how do you see? How do you see that? How do how do we? Is it possible to deconstruct that or decouple that? No, I fully agree about this. is very problematic, particularly in the transnational education in T and E. I, I think、um, a lot of it is exporting not simply the education itself, but the value system,、mm. right? 
But I would point out a lot of it, um, what you just mentioned in the case of Malaysia, is agency of the global south. Mm, yes. I don't think this is a simple sort of one-way export. This is also, and I, I address this in my article, we need to examine the agency, I mean, to put it bluntly, the complicity mm -hmm. of actors in the global south who are importing T&E. Right. Yeah. So I, I would love to see more studies done on what that actually means, rather than a blanket statement that the global south is passive and you know receiving education from the north. Yeah, right. absolutely. I mean, and particularly when you you know when we look at, I mean, many many global south locations have now had T and E for decades. Right. It's 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 not a new concept. In many countries, and therefore their quality assurance agencies are robust. They are structured. They they have control. You know, you could. I think you could make the legitimate argument that twenty years ago, perhaps, countries in the global south were were happy to accept, or or were certainly more. They were more dependent in the power dynamic. I agree with you. I don't think that's a valid argument anymore. You know, there there is much more of a selection process, which is we want you because you align to our national strategy, or we want you because you bring something that we specifically want, rather than being held hostage to to the foreign power, however that, you know. But yes, I mean, it's it's uh, it's whether we look at education as a, as a commodity, whether we look at something that can be genuinely exported and imported, or whether we're talking about, you know, contextual impact, whether we're talking about societal value, um, and... I don't know. I don't think we have these conversations about international students going abroad to study because there seems to be the assumption, well, you've chosen to come to country X and therefore you must conform to country X, you know, even though country X is multicultural and international in its own right. And so is there any one identity anywhere right anymore? It's and I mean, you talk about this a lot in your in your article, you particularly mentioned the the point when um, um, your one of your professors said, "Oh, you you know your your name, Jack Lee. Well, you say you're from Canada, but but surely you must be from China, you know, <laughs> as if as if that wouldn't be possible to to be from Canada with a with a non. I mean, what is it? What even is a Canadian name? Who knows, right? It's 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 right. right? There isn't one. <laughs> so um, yes, um, yeah. I mean, are you able to reflect on on your experiences of of, of that type of mobility as a, as a student, and maybe you know that gives us a some sort of insight into how that, that might be perceived today. Yeah, I think that issue of identity, particularly when it's hybrid or when we are crossing borders, we haven't really addressed that in higher education or specifically TME. Mm. You know, for example, the large Asian diaspora, uh, which I would include myself in, not exactly, you know, an Asian scholar based in Asia. You know, there are lots of uh, Asian scholars within the diaspora who are writing about Asia. And there's something different going on. Or uh, uh, British African or British Chinese. Yeah. Right? Their, their live experience has been quite different than someone who is based in China or based in Africa. Right? And that, I find that interesting, that hybrid identity of, um, yes, in a way, you have your own sense of identity, but society also projects what they think you are. <laughs> yes, of course. Right. Yes. Yes. So they will box you, box you into, as I said in my article, the name, my name, or my skin color, 
I will be bots in certain settings. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You, you write, I think, um, I'll probably get the, the exact quote wrong, but you, you talk about culture as, as, a, as a dynamic terrain, right? You talk about it as a shifting um, reality that, you know, our place and our space obviously impacts. Um, and I, I think it's, you know, I, we were talking before we started recording about, I mean, I, I worked in, in Southeast Asia and was therefore, you know, had a similar experience of being visually very different from the surroundings in which I found myself, um, uh, you know, and also living in that world where I, I'd, I'd find students who, and I've said this on previous podcasts, had expected all British academics to be white, right? And expected, you know, all teachers that are British, and you think, well, that's not remotely accurate. It's a perception, sure. I mean, it's it's come from, you know, from, from somewhere, but, you know, um, and I, I had a colleague who, uh, I think I mentioned this on a previous podcast. They they would want they would uh, English language teacher. Um, it was overseas Chinese colleague who'd been in Canada um, for most of their career, but therefore understood you know more acutely the two the two elements of the of the learning experience. You know, had been a a Chinese student in China and also had been a Chinese student overseas learning you know a foreign language in a in another country and had come back to to teach English. Um, and the student said, well, no, no, we want the, the white teacher because the perception is, well, that they're going to be able, you know, even though in this case, the white teacher was Polish and English was their third language and, you know, had a different learning framework. And it, it sort of bound into, as you say, even our own, our own perceptions of our own identity and, and how we perceive that in, in, in other people. Um, um, and I think it, you, you, I guess it's, it's expedient just to put people in a box. It's completely, you know, flawed. Um, so are you, how do you, how do you conceive of yourself within that structure? You know, when you're talking about being an Asian scholar abroad, do you abroad again is a funny term, an Asian scholar within the diaspora? Um, does your, does your, how does your lived experience, um, how has it changed your, I guess, your, your reflection on identity as you've moved because you've, you've moved and worked in, in many diverse countries with very very different educational systems so how is that and of course you have experienced prejudice in all of them because <laughs> the world the world is what the world is sadly um so i mean but i'm just curious very interested in your how that's informed your 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 journey really and your your sense of of identity has yeah. has that shifted along the way no it has shifted i, I was so i've now lived in uk for five years and I have to say, I do notice a pattern of racial scholars, like racial minorities, who tend to gravitate towards certain topics. It's almost a sense of legitimacy. Mm. For example, topics on Global South, or topics on, you know, in a UK context, BAM, Black yeah. Asian uh, Minority Ethnic, the term that we use in the UK. Mm-hmm. It's seemingly that if you are a racial minority scholar, you have legitimacy to write on these topics. But what if I were to take on a topic like British higher education? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Uh, REF, Research Excellence Framework. Yeah. Right? Asian scholar taking on that, I suddenly feel like there is less legitimacy given to me because one, I am not from UK and I am a racial scholar. So what is a racial minority scholar, a foreigner, talking about ref in the UK? Right. 
But perhaps it's more acceptable if you are a European scholar writing about this. So I, I am acutely aware of this in the UK context. I do see a pattern. I mean, I don't have hardcore evidence, but you know, I am deeply interested in global south and obviously Asia as well. But I hope that does not simply define my research agenda.、Mm. Right? I would say, broadly speaking, my interest is internationalization. Yeah. Regardless of where. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, and with with obviously all your experience in comparative education, you the ability to reflect and comment on multiple systems, you know, is is a foundation for how we we increase our understanding. But it's it's very interesting because even then, so even as a professional academic scholar, <laughs> yes, there are still there are still constraints about the what you think you're. Legitimately able to comment on,、um, yeah, it's it's an interesting. I mean, I'm not sure I'd want to write about ref if we're honest.、Um, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I find it an interesting topic enough to write about. But I take I take the point that you're making about the the sort of institutional structure.、Um, Well, I thought about being based in Scotland,、uh, starting some comparative studies on Scottish higher education and something else. Yeah, yeah. But I want, I am going to be questioned. Well, why are you? Well, what's your credibility in talking about Scottish higher education? Yeah. Well, it should be the fact that you work in Scottish higher education, right? That should be sufficient credibility to to be able to talk about it. Um, um. Yeah. Okay, well, that's so.、Uh, along the way, then, so you you've had you've had experience.、Um, uh, you see, you know, you've got US, you've got Canada,、um, uh, and then Kazakhstan,、um, uh, and obviously you've got the all the the interest in in the the, the Asian educational hubs and、uh, and activity.、Um, is there a sense? Going back to what we were talking about, you know, about the value base of education, you know, I mean, is there is there a sense that partners are chosen、um, with this sort of colonization agenda in mind, or or the anti, or you know, colonization? I mean, I'm thinking about the sort of expansion of international higher education,、um, and I'm wondering about sustainable partnerships, and I'm wondering about you know shared sort of experiences, and I'm, I'm wondering about. Student mobility, and I'm wondering about all these different things that make you know, partnerships possibly sustainable. And I was, I wanted to ask you something about about this that's been been on my mind for a while.、Um, in in、um, in this PhD thesis of of your students that we were talking about earlier, there was a a, a piece of analysis.、Um, And obviously, it's Dr. Paula、um, Sanders. We should give her, her credit, obviously, for for the work. And it's it's something that struck me because I I was really surprised, and I'd never thought about it in this way. And I've worked in TNE for for you know for several years. And the point made was that by constructing the or replicating the campus, the home campus abroad, which is something TNE does, and the idea that it does is to say you're in the same. You know, you may be not in the home country of the the studies, but you are experiencing the same thing. You know, the the experience is the same, the quality is the same. Look, we've got the same color wallpaper, we've got the same color you know furniture. It is the same place. And the point made in Paula's、um, you know thesis was actually that creates another barrier between the local students and the educational provider.
And I was really struck by that because, as I said, it, it, it had never occurred to me that that would be a barrier. It, you know, it was always a case of it's replicating and therefore it, it's a level of comfort because you are ensuring that you're, you're receiving the same, the same thing. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about space, um, you know, because you talk about that in the article. And, and obviously there's distance involved and, yes, there's time involved. And, and, you know, in some cases there are different people teaching different curricula. But I'm, I'm, this notion of space base and how we construct learning and how we where we situate it I, i'm really really interested in your, your thoughts you've obviously occupied this space in in many spaces right um <laughs> if that makes sense grammatically yeah yeah so i would say a lot of the situations i think we are creating false equivalencies right i understand quality assurance aspect the home campus or the mother institution requires certain equivalencies. But when we then take this to T&E, I think we are setting ourselves up for something that is quite artificial. Um, I mean, you've lived in Malaysia. You know the moment you walk into an eating establishment. I remember visiting many Malaysian campuses, how the student cafeteria had the halal section yep. and catering for uh, Muslim students, right? That is a vivid example of, for me of actually incorporating what is the local norm. Mm. But we do, not do, we do not do any of that, really, at, I would say, at the academic perspective. Yeah. Right? In TNE, we are expected to explore what we have. And I think Paula Sanderson's thesis is a critical reading of that, in that that kind of export is simply adopting a deficiency model. Mm. There is nothing from the host country that could possibly contribute. Yeah. Which is very sad. So why will we ever take in sort of something in locally for the curriculum or even local practices, right? Yeah. So I kind of think E&E perhaps has an expiry date. If there is that kind of T&E, perhaps I think the next wave is actually something much more joint a joint program, which uh, some places in Singapore is delivering. Yeah. Right? It's not a straight export. It is actually, there is a large component coming from local academics. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, links back to the, the issue you were talking about, the agency within the Global South, right? It's, it's it, once you, I mean, you know, the, the sort of leveling of the playing field, you know, British Council had a conference, I think, on that a few years ago. But, you know, that, that sort of notion where the dependency model shifts, and and it becomes more of a partnership, right? And and so the the local university can say, well, and is as indeed can their quality assurance and their ministry say, no, 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 we want X, and therefore we build a collaborative, you know, uh, process together, which you know may have the recognition of your name, but has the the value. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think TNE, you know, historically was about access, right? It was providing opportunity at a theoretically more cost efficient model for the student where travel wasn't as possible. And now when we're looking at sustainability, it has to be about impact, right? It has to be about value to the community. It has to be about relevance to, to, to the local context in, in some, in some way. Um, um, my, uh, my daughter does, uh, is at an IB school, um, here in, in Dubai. And so they have a lot of international examples, but at one point in class, they were talking about money and the example was pounds and pence. And essentially no kid in the class has ever been to a country that used pounds and pence. And so therefore the example in that case was, you know, irrelevant, right? It, it, 
it's relevant in the sense that you're expanding global understanding, but irrelevant in terms of trying to understand the practicality of the the example. Um, and th- so this sort of false equivalency in, in Malaysia, there's a, not unique to Malaysia, but there's a term same, same, but different, right? It's a, it's a um, it looks the same, but, you know, in reality, it's obviously going to be different. And I guess the question is, how do we integrate that and then even export it in the other direction, right? How do you reinvigorate the home curricula with, you know, with this sort of international experience? Um, and so, I mean, you're, you're, you're saying that although we, we maybe have that at the sort of operational level, um, at the academic, you know, structural educational curriculum, it's, it's not something we've, we've really engaged with yet. Yeah, we haven't, and perhaps it's our actual sort of uh, back-end QA practices that need to change, mm. right? Rather than an exact copy of a program, which is unrealistic, we need to recognize there is a different model that we need to pursue. Yeah, yeah. Which actually leads me to ask you about the German um, by university model, because that's quite an interesting one in this space, right? It's It's about in some cases, shared identity, but in, in some cases, sort of, uh, I mean, maybe, maybe clearly you'll be able to do this much more eloquently than me. Maybe you could just sort of give us a bit more, uh, you know, discussion about, about how that's uh, unfolding. Yeah, so uh, uh, I was looking at the German Jordanian yes, University. Yes, as was my student, yes. Yeah. It is based in Amman. Also in Kazakhstan, we have a, a German Kazakh University and uh, they, these two institutions come from very different institutional histories. Uh, one is, I believe, already over 20 years old, whereas the Jordanian one is a much newer creation. Um, I would say in my interviews with sort of the German side, they are very cautious about this coming across as some kind of um, colonization. Yeah. So the German side really puts at a sort of capacity building and development particularly in uh, technology mm-hmm. and also specifically from the Jordanian side, this is also what they requested. Rather than sort of abstract, high level theoretical higher education, they wanted much more of an applied higher education, which the Germans are known for in their uh, um, applied universities, the Hochschule in German. Mm-hmm. So I can see sort of the agency from the Jordanian side, like this is what we want and that's the expertise you have. So you come and deliver it for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, uh, makes sense from a, as you say, from the Jordanian perspective, but you'd also think it has to make sense from the German perspective because you're you're looking at achievable goals, right? You're, look at, you're looking at um, a clear list of of expectations outcomes you know activities and you're, you're looking at more of a shared a shared model um do you think that the the german educational pricing model plays a factor in this compared to say obviously the uk fee structure oh yes i think that's a huge difference so i would say from the german side this is not uh the neoliberal model that we think of in western uh, tne or western internationalization uh, the Germans are really, I would say, genuinely interested in capacity building. But the other side is something they are less willing to talk about is immigration. Mm-hmm. The fact you have a German Jordanian university 
with students who are eager uh, to pursue a future, and I mean long-term future in Germany, it benefits Germany as an economy. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, when I interview German uh, policymakers, they are a bit hesitant to sort of acknowledge that, right? This, in, in fact, it's an immigration stream, as we would have in UK or Canada of international students and yeah. extending their visas. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe not so much in the UK anymore, but uh, yeah. <laughs> True. But yes, um, it's interesting. I mean, just as a by point of comparison, when I was based in Malaysia, um, the international student recruitment model was was quite different in in the sense that international students it's very difficult for them to work during their studies, um, uh, and then it became possible, but sort of quite heavily capped. Um, and it was also relatively difficult. I mean, I'm talking, you know, this is you know a decade ago, relatively difficult um, for students to obtain a work visa upon graduation. And so we, you know, we used to see a lot of students being sort of state-sponsored, particularly from, from African nations, maybe Nigeria, Ghana, um, and they would be sponsored by the state government to undertake a British degree, but just not in Britain. So obviously the cost was lower. Um, in, in some cases, it was a Muslim country, you know, so there was that sort of shared sort of um, that shared space and, and sort of, you know, comfort level for the students. Um, and there was no real prospect of the students staying to work. And so there was a circulation of the students back to the, the, the funding country, um, sort of rather than a brain brain drain. And it was kind of a an odd model, but, you know, an interesting model, depending on which country in the equation that you were you were looking at. Um, but I mean, you're you've obviously much more so than me, but, you know, we've both moved around professionally and in, in education. Um, what are your views on, on this? I mean, yes, it's a, it's a, an income stream, but I mean, in terms of, of the immigration, the movement of students, you know, how, how should we be more, you know, encouraging this? Um, Cheryl, you, you know, we just put up a, a post recently about, you know, the UK looking to export more students, right? So to actually broaden their horizon while at the same time, policies in place to sort of stop people coming in. I mean, what, what are your views on this as, as, as an, an academic in Britain um, and an academic of, of many other places at the same time? Well, I think the whole issue of student mobility, I think a lot of this is driven by different motivations. So in a place like Malaysia, I would say it's actually profit-driven. Uh, absolutely. So yes. in my interview, right, you would agree, yes. a lot of these schemes, it's to drive, and the Malaysian government realizes it's lacking in its service sector to build its economy. So higher education is an example of a service sector. Yes. So Malaysians are recruiting, as you know, students not for the purpose of immigration, but for the purpose of earning the profit as a service sector. Yes. So, but then next door, I would say the Singaporeans have very different motivations. The Singaporeans are recruiting talent Hopefully, eventually, you will stay in Singapore. Yes. But I would say in the last five to six years, that has hit a resistance among Singaporeans of sort of a criticism of, you know, all this outward-looking, uh, outward-facing higher education, while the local population has been marginalized. Yeah. So uh, I think for the UK, it is largely profit-driven at this stage. Um, and given the current conservative government, I think that also plays out quite uh, apparent that this is about driving international students immigration. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, as long as that 
that sort of construct is the is the primary driver the conversations about decolonization are not going to happen because they're, they're you know it's it's a commodification process you know and it's therefore controlled accordingly or you know regulated accordingly i guess maybe um it's interesting the singapore example because i remember when i was based in malaysia i remember reading something which was singapore not just encouraging talent but also encouraging talent to then have kids so essentially it's like you no know, we want to build up the population we want to grow you know really long term but as you say, the, the almost the inevitable backlash to that has to be the local population saying, "Well, hang on a second, you know what what what's what about you know what about us?" Which I suppose is is not that dissimilar to a lot of stuff that's coming out of the UK, right? It, it's it's the sort of focus on or you know, and then the, the reverse back to to try and you know control. I was curious though, what were your reflections on on your time in Kazakhstan in this in this sort of space? Because I would imagine that for many people listening, although a very established hub, it's not it's not particularly published, right? It's not we don't know a tremendous amount about um, uh, uh, the higher education activity. So, you know, what are your reflections on on that? I think there are lots of. Uh great things happening in terms of at the policy level. I, I think some of these reforms are genuine to, to uh, change education in Kazakhstan, but also a lot of uh, the projects, including my former employer, uh, Nazarbayev University, it is a high profile institution for also credibility. Mm. Credibility of the regime. Yeah, yeah. And there has been Papers written, I mean, I would highly recommend a geographer, American geographer, Natalie Koch, K-O-C-H. She has written about how Kazakhstan uses education, higher education, and sports for international legitimacy. Mm. I find her work fascinating. So this is a very different take on what we think of as internationalization or, uh, you know, exporting education. But for the purpose of propping up a regime. Yeah. Very critical, but you should read. And Kazakhstan has also, in recent years, uh, poached a lot of uh, uh, foreign uh, athletes to represent Kazakhstan in international competition. Yeah, yeah. Right? So this is thought power legitimacy that is being pushed. Um, there are There is a flurry of new policies in Kazakhstan. I mean, there are yeah, so many policies, so many reforms that it's hard to keep track. And sometimes you wonder, you know, what is actually changing. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because that, again, that's another, you know, branch of the identity question, isn't it? That, you know, um, a country brings in a company or a provider or a university because of that university's name. And, and in so doing, that provides a form of legitimacy or credibility, right? Or reputation to, to the country. Um which is a very strong example of the agency of that country, then our question almost becomes, what's the motivation of the university for doing this, right? Because in, in, as we know that in many, many T&E areas, there are conversations around, or, or rather absence of conversations around access and academic freedom and, you know, regulatory frameworks. And, and you know, a lot of the areas where education is growing 
you have university conversations about should we be there, shouldn't we be there, what is happening, you know, how is it happening. Um, always interesting because quite often those conversations, it's not that things are perfect at home, it's just easy to, to criticise them uh, somewhere somewhere else. Um, uh, it's, an, it's an interesting conversation about, you know, why why we go where we go and what what we get out of it when we're when we're there um oh yeah i mean i'm suddenly reminded so i work for the school of education in uh, nazarbayev university our contractual agreement for research was with cambridge and university of and i participated in some of those discussions about sort of the future of our partnership there is tremendous agency coming from Kazakhstan. Mm. It is not, you know, Cambridge or UPenn dictating the terms. Mm -hmm. So what you see at the end, of course, there is a Kazakh agency at play. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, one point in Malaysia, um, the, the sort of funding ministerial structure had a, a very sort of clever approach, which was to allow the foreign universities, so typically the branch campuses, to bid for national funding, um, which historically had only been, you know, accessible by the national universities. Um, and so they opened the door and they said, however, in order to apply, you must apply in collaboration with a national university and the national university must be the PI. So, you know, you maintain the... Uh, the control you maintain the sort of you know reputation, but you bring in, and that's that's a pure example of agency, right? It's saying we have something that we know you want. These are the rules, and frankly, why shouldn't the host country dictate the rules? I mean, right? You you as a foreign provider exactly. are the guest, right? It's you are subject to their laws and their values um, while navigating you know your own. Um, yeah, it's it's funny because in in the book I mentioned that, that Judith and I I wrote um, Judith wrote a chapter on sport diplomacy, and so how universities use sport as a soft power, you know, and and um, I remember conversations in in Dubai um, several years ago when universities were looking at UK partner potential UK partners, and one of the conversations was football teams. If the UK university is in a city with a recognizable or well-known premiership team the brand recognition is higher right you've, you've got an automatic association because football or sport more broadly is an international currency wow um uh yeah um interesting <laughs> but i mean you know that's the point isn't it you know back to the examples we were giving you know about student perception of quality and where they go these are based on soft power often they are based on culture they are based on on things that we don't even really perceive or or, or, or we're not aware of that we've just somehow you know yeah. consumed by uh by where we've been or what we've heard um and obviously yeah. that leads to both and the I, positive and the negative yeah and I, I think this discussion i think it's important to point out the examples that we are talking about places like singapore china to some extent malaysia there's a privilege that comes with their agency. Mm. So I don't want I don't want listeners to suddenly think the global south always has agency. No, right? that's an excellent I mean, excellent point. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Right? So you know in the case of uh, China to do anything in terms of educational partnership it requires multiple multiple levels of screening. Yes. Right? Yes. 
And when I interview also Singaporeans about T&E, they were very selective. Well, we already have many institutions. We have expertise in many things. Why, why do we want to simply open the door for you to come? Yeah. As a new institution. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Right? So I think they, these players have uh, some agency, or as you know, how TNE is uh, stuck in the Indian parliament <laughs> for like yes. 10 years. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, and that's, again, it's the, it's the problem, isn't it, with the term global south creates a sort of form of homogeneity, which is not remotely there. There are massively different levels of everything. Power, quality, capability, access, um, motivation, right? And so, um, yes, and I mean, the, the examples that we've been given, we are giving, are from established educational um, players in the international sphere, right? They are, they are robust, they are reputational, they, you know, they have agency born of many, many variables. Um, um, I mean, the Malaysia case is interesting because we can think about it from when it sort of was very early stages to, you know, the multiple stages it's gone through to become, you know, what it is. Um, and Dubai, similarly, you know, Dubai, you know, has the, the, you know, almost weekly applications for people to set up campuses and Dubai can say no, right? Dubai can say, we, you know, it's very nice that you want to come and you may be really good at who what you are, but we don't need you. Right, what we need is, you know, we need something else. And so that, yes, that agency is born from time, right? It's born from experience and it's born from, you know, sustained capability and, and power. Yeah. Um, um, and that has to be a good thing within the international education sphere, right? Because the more that more countries become powerful enough to enter into partnerships from a if not exact, but a quasi-equal relationship, you force the need to learn from your partner. Yes, right, and I fully agree. Uh, I think it's great to see that level of sort of uh, agency. I would also further add, and I write about this in my paper, not to assume that whatever the Global South does, if there is an actor at a table for discussion or policy making, that it is wonderful. Oh, yes, yes. No, a very good point. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right? I, I think there's a, this is the, the problem I have with decolonization. As long as we have a voice from the global south or participant, this is a checklist that this is great. Mm. But if we are truly, for example, after, say, equity or social justice, I would be vigilant about everything the global south is doing as well. Mm. It could be terrible for it. Yeah. No, sure. Absolutely. And I mean, it's a, <laughs> yeah, it's a fascinating point, isn't it? Because to assume that everything that comes from a previously, at least, you know, within what we're talking about, academically marginalized, you know, low, you know, area to then to say, oh, well, no, of course, you know, you know, from a sort of a postmodern, you know, aim for social justice, everything that is now said by, you know, the margin is, is obviously going to be correct. Well, that's not actually treating the margin with respect. And it's not treating the margin as individuals either. And it's not actually looking at the complexities or the different levels of development of, um, you know, it's always interesting when, you know, developed nations criticize developing nations for things that, you know, the developed nation only did yesterday. 
you know that that whole thing about you know well we've been doing this for at least twenty four hours and you you doing it completely wrong You're like well yeah hang on <laughs> you know it's not it's not in our national best interest at the moment and you know our level of development is 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 different from yours um, so I mean what we're really sort of advocating here is for a more open structured sort of communication pathways that that take into account the the space and identity as, as as best that can happen right i mean it's uh, it's never going to be um completely foolproof because obviously we're, we're viewing things through our own lenses anyway right as much as as much as we we try to avoid it so where do you see to sort of i mean this i'm literally i could talk to you about this all day but i i appreciate you know you've got your life to get back to so just sort of maybe to bring it to you know um some form of a, a stop at least if not a conclusion where do you see this space moving over the next whatever it might be five ten years i mean what where do you think we we are moving in our conversations or where do you think we should be moving in our conversations within this sort of decolonization and an identity issue uh, it's a very very simple question right no not not too difficult for you to answer right it's uh <laughs> <laughs> well my my actually original background in entering education was intercultural communication. I mean, prior to doing anything in uh, higher education, I, I was rooted in the field of intercultural communication. And I often think that a lot of that is missing mm. in what we do in higher education today, right? So the issue of, for example, recognizing that there could be local knowledge or local curriculum for a T&E, in a way, that is an intercultural dialogue. Mm. Right. Yes. So I'm, I, I have never advocated for a total, you know, prohibition of anything from the West. I myself grew up in both the East and the West. I can see strength in both sides. Mm. And I think there's complexity in both sides. Right. So I think that kind of dialogue is still missing. We kind of think of it, it import, export or East and West or North and South. We don't truly think of an integration of something. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, the issue of diaspora—not simply Asian diaspora, but African diaspora—those are also valuable communities that I don't think we've really conducted research or tapped into for mm. international higher education. Yeah. Right. So perhaps in the future, I would like to see more of that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, uh, more vigilant about what goes on in global south not a sort of simplistic assumption that all things indigenous is great i don't i don't take that view mm -hmm. and i think i think it's also politically incorrect in some circles to say that like when i wrote the article i was kind of thinking am i going to be criticized for saying really politically incorrect things that indigenous knowledge can be terrible mm. <laughs> But it's interesting, isn't it? Because the point you were making about not writing about ref, I would never be able to write that article. Really? Right. If I, well, no, that's not true because there are many people that look like me that say things like that, right? That say indigenous. Um, so yes, I clearly, I could, I would never, um, I would find it much harder to write that, I suppose, in the sense that I would, I would feel that I would lack the credibility to do so because it would be a judgment call. Right, because it, it's a, it's oh, it's it's something writing about writing or critiquing something from which I am not part of, 
Whereas in the case of critiquing something from which I am a part of, you know, absolutely. Now, these two examples are very different because in one case, we're talking about either a racial or a cultural difference. Why a, an academic working in Britain can't write about ref irrespective of where he or she comes from? I mean, that's just absurd. Like, you know, everybody should be able to write about the systems within which they operate, right? Because they, they also have the potential to shed new light on it by looking at it in a different way, right? Which, is the, which can therefore obviously be very, very helpful. Yes, I fully agree. But what I mean is I think sort of at a perception level. I, I often joke, and I'm going to say this in the podcast, I often joke I did not realize I'm Asian until I moved to the UK. <laughs> yes. I mean, there is some truth in every joke, right? Yeah. But generally speaking, living in Canada, I am not fully conscious of my Asian identity because I do see Asians at all sectors of society, right. at all levels, including very senior levels. In the UK, I don't really see that. And it's also, I am reminded by other people that I am Asian. Yes. <laughs> it's, I mean, I've, I've heard that, I've heard that before from, from colleagues. I've heard it from, I think, comedians, that type of an analysis where we only take on our identity when it's forced upon us by other people. Because otherwise, we're just who we are, right? It's just, I'm not thinking about it. It's just what I am, where I am. And, you know, I feel comfortable or uncomfortable or right or wrong, depending on the circumstance, right? But it's, it's when we, our identity is, however much we may agree with that identity, right? Or, or accept that identity, when it's superimposed or forced upon us as a label, it then gets in the way of the individual, Right. It, because we come, exactly. as you said, it's very easy to put people in a box. We just become part of the collective and that collective comes with this whole sense of, uh, you know, the iceberg theory within cultural dynamics. Right. It comes with this whole other sense of um, of constructs that are often very rarely understood, if not fully accepted. Right. So, yeah, it's um, it's it's interesting. Um, it's funny, though, isn't it? You know, because as you know, you and I work in international higher education and the more the world internationalizes, you could make the argument that there is no there is no diaspora because everything's diaspora, you know, in the, in the sense that if everybody lives or travels somewhere else, you know, we are all both of a place and, and from another place and, you know, a product of all the places. And in which case, you know, we should have the ability and the right to speak about those. Right. Because that's part of who we are and where we are. Yeah. Yeah. And it's increasingly I, I call it hypermobility. Right, both among academics and students gaining experiences from different HE systems. Mm. Yeah, and the beautiful thing about when you move in academia, you realize that no single one is remotely perfect, <laughs> and they are exactly. they are all flawed in their own beautiful way. <laughs> yes, while yes. while all copying each other, thinking that the other one is the model to follow. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there's something very deeply human about that reality. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, hey, Jack, this has been this has been fantastic. Um, and I will make sure to link um, uh, the article from Natalie Koch, right, you mentioned um, about the, the geography uh, and, uh, and identity. And, uh, and obviously, I'll link your your article um, as well. Um, and uh, yeah, this has been a fascinating journey through um, time and space, as it were. Um, thank you. Yes. Thank you very much indeed for, for your time and for your, I mean, both reflections and, and, uh, and honesty about this. So it's, a, it's a topic we, 
we're only going to better understand the more we talk and the more we talk to people from different from us or the same as us or from different places with different experiences because that, I think it's a, a hugely important part of trying to better understand what it is we're doing. Um, yeah, so thank you. Yes. Thank you very much indeed. No, thank you for the invitation. I, I, uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, I found this to be uh, delightful to uh, have this conversation. And uh, we haven't actually met in person, so hopefully <laughs> yeah. that will happen soon. Yes. Well, if, if I get to, to Glasgow, University of Glasgow, one of the partners of my you know, British University in Dubai, we will certainly arrange that in advance. It would be, um, be nice to see each other, yeah, share a coffee or tea actually face to face rather than uh, remotely. So, yes. Well, good luck with the move to Glasgow and, um, and uh, hopefully I'll get to see you again in person. Not again. Hopefully I'll get to see you again, but in person um, before too long. Thank you very okay. much. Thank you, Chris.